Welcome to Harmony Christian Church Podcast. For more information about us, visit HarmonyChurchFamily.org. I want to talk this morning about a topic I've talked about lots and lots and lots of times, but um, I talk about it because I truly believe it is the greatest power that we have. It is the most important thing that we can have as Christians, uh, really of anything, and really of, it's the most important thing we can have as people, and that is our devotion with the Father, our relationship with Jesus, the most important thing. It's the most valued treasure that we have, period, is our relationship with Jesus. And so I want to talk about that this morning, about our covenant. I'm going to use these words kind of interchangeably, devotion, covenant, relationship, vow, those sorts of things. So, so if, uh, if, I, if you hear one of those words, they kind of all are meaning the same thing this morning. We're throwing Webster's out dictionary out and they all mean the same thing. All right. So devotion, covenant, vow, relationship, all of those things. I'm going to talk about those things uh, with you this morning, but specifically I'm going to talk about some things that can kind of sneak in and hinder that relationship. Those little foxes that come in and try to spoil the vine. So I want to talk about with you this morning. And I'm not normally a three-point kind of preacher, but this morning I'm a three-point kind of preacher because I, I think it's just going to be the easiest way to present this message this morning. But um, I want to talk to you again this morning about our greatest power is our covenant, our relationship with the Father. Let's look at Numbers chapter 6 to start with. Numbers chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 1. Number six, verse one. How many of you have ever heard of the Nazarite vow? If you haven't, you're about to, all right? The Nazarite vow. So this is what it says in Numbers chapter six, verse one. It says, then the Lord said to Moses, give the following instructions to the people of Israel. If any of you or if any of the people, either men or women, take the special vow of a Nazarite, setting themselves apart to the Lord in a special way, they must give up wine and other alcoholic drinks. They must not use vinegar made from wine or from other alcoholic drinks. They must not drink fresh grape juice and they must not eat grapes or raisins. As long as they are bound by their Nazarite vow, they are not allowed to eat or drink anything that comes from the grapevine, not even the grape seeds or the skins. They must never cut the hair throughout their, their hair throughout the time of their vow, for they are holy and set apart for the Lord. Until the time their vow has been fulfilled, they must let their hair grow long. Some of you men would have a hard time with that part of the vow, wouldn't you? And they, not me, I have a full head of hair. And they must not go near a dead body during the entire period of their vow for, to the Lord. Even if the dead person is their own father and mother, brother or sister, they must not defile themselves for the hair on their head is the symbol of their separation to God. This requirement applies as long as they are set apart to the Lord. So there's basically three requirements, three standards that is laid out for the Nazarite vow. So in, in essence, the Nazarite vow is this 
this separation unto the Father. In fact, the word Nazarite is the word Nazir, which means to be separated or to be consecrated or set apart. And so it's, it's this special vow that these people would take uh, in order to separate themselves unto the Lord. And there's three rules for separation. Rule number one, you cannot eat or drink anything that comes from the grapevine. So no alcoholic beverages, no wine, no, uh, you can't eat the grapes. You can't eat the seeds or even the skins of the grapes. You have to stay away completely from the vine. Rule number two, you could not cut the hair on your head. You had to let your hair grow long. No matter how bad your haircut looked, it didn't matter. You had to let your hair grow long. This, this is kind of funny. We went through a season when, while we were at the ramp where everybody was going to be a Nazarite. You know, like they were, everybody took on the Nazarite vow, which was awesome. But let me tell you, there were some pretty nasty, gnarly looking haircuts during that season. Uh, young guys who were unmarried, who didn't know how to wash their hair, uh, you know, those sorts of things. There's all kinds of bugs and oils and it was just, it was just kind of weird. But anyways, so the Nazarite, you can't cut your hair. Rule number three, you could not go near a dead thing. So if your friend's mom dies, you're sending a card, right? You're not going to the funeral. You're sending a sympathy card. You're sending some flowers. You're not stepping foot in the funeral home because you are not allowed near a dead thing. Okay? So three rules. Can't take, consume from the vine, can't cut the hair of your, on your head, and you can't go near a dead thing. These were the stipulations for a Nazarite. There is some famous Nazarites in the Bible um, that you all know who they are, uh, but maybe you didn't realize they were Nazarites. Samuel the prophet, the one who anointed David to be king, Samuel, uh, was a Nazarite. John the Baptist the voice of one crying in the wilderness, right? He was a Nazarite. And probably most famously, anybody? Samson was a Nazarite, exactly. And that's who we're gonna mostly focus on today is Samson and learn some things from Samson. So Samson was a Nazarite from birth, which this is interesting. I'm, this is, I'm kind of laying the groundwork, so stick with me just for a moment. Samson was a Nazarite from birth. Most Nazarites had the choice to be a Nazarite. They didn't, they didn't choose to take on the vow until later on in their life. It was their choice. But Samson was born a Nazarite. The angel of the Lord, it says in, the, it says in uh, Judges, says that the angel of the Lord uh, came to Samson's mom who was barren and said, you are going to have a child and he is going to be a Nazarite separated unto the Lord and that his purpose was going to be to come and to free the Israelites from the enslavement of the, from the Philistines. So he was to be set apart so that he could be, rise up and be the one to set Israel free from the enslavement of the Philistines. So this was Samson's call. This was his job. He, was not, he did not choose to be a Nazarite. God chose him from the very beginning to be a Nazarite. Right? The Lord made him a Nazarite. Because he knew in order for him to do his job of setting the Israelites free, 
then he had to have the single greatest weapon anyone could have. And that is a covenant with the father. That God knew for Samson to be able to free the Israelites, to bring the Israelites out from captivity, that in order for him to do that, he needed to have the single greatest weapon any of us could have, which is a covenant with the Father. And let's bring this up to today, that for us to make an impact on the world around us, we've been talking about this Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, in order for us to have the influence in the culture that we so desperately need to have, we have to have the most basic but most profound and powerful of all things, which is a covenant relationship with the Father. If we are going to make any sort of an impact, we have to start with square one, which is devotion to the Father. Simple devotion, right, to Jesus. We have to have a covenant relationship with the Father. Are you all with me this morning? You are all very quiet. I'm going to need, I'm going to, need to hear something. Are you all with me this morning? I'm, I'm going to make you stand up. You know, we're going we're gonna to go uh, Catholic style, and I'll make you stand up, sit down, stand up and sit down, make sure we're all alert here. So, all right, you all with me? What's the most powerful thing any of us can have? covenant with the father, relationship with the father. And, and God knew that in order for Samson to be able to defeat the Philistines, he had to have that covenant with the father, which is why from birth, he had to be set apart as a Nazarite. Amen. The greatest, the greatest, most powerful tool we have is our relationship, is our covenant with the father. Listen, I heard, that, I heard a pastor say this not too long ago. I think it was actually Bill Johnson. He says, you plus God is the majority. You plus God is the majority. The entire world could be stacked up against you. But if you and God are together, it is the majority. He wins every single time. Every single time. You plus God is the majority. You see... I'm not nearly as concerned about what the world is doing right now. I'm not nearly concerned about what, what people who have no faith in Jesus are doing right now. Listen, they're living like people without Jesus. It's kind of to be expected, right? What I'm concerned about is what the church is doing right now. Right? If you read the Gospels, Jesus had very little concern about Rome. But he was very concerned about the Sanhedrin, about the leaders of the church, about the ones who professed to be followers of his father, right, of God. He was very concerned. And, and, and we should be the same way. I, I'm not nearly as concerned about what Rome is doing. I'm not nearly concerned about what Babylon is doing. They're living like Rome and they're living like Babylon. But I'm deeply concerned about how we're living in the church. And what, I'm, what, what I don't want to see and what we have seen so many times is we see, we see Christians without devotion. We see believers 
who come on a Sunday morning that have no relationship, no covenant with the Father outside of Sunday morning Christianity. And why that concerns me is, is because we will not have any impact whatsoever on the world if we keep living our Christianity in that way. Because the single, what is it? The single most important thing, the greatest power we have is our covenant with the Father. And without that covenant, we are, we are just, just shells of people that aren't going to make a difference, have any sort of impact in our world and in our community. You plus God is a majority, but you all by yourself, you don't stand a chance. The most important thing, I'm going to say it five bazillion times this morning. The most important thing about us, the most powerful weapon we have is our relationship with the Father. Amen? God made Samson a Nazarite. He set him apart because he knew that if he was going to deliver Israel, then his greatest weapon was his covenant with God. But as we all know, Samson had some issues. Samson had some issues. His issues started long before Delilah, right? So our, our most, uh, the most well-known story about Samson is Samson and Delilah, which we will get to, but his issues started well before Delilah. His issues were in direct conflict with his greatest treasure, which was his covenant. That's if when you look through Samson's life, that his failures, his mistakes, his issues, all of them were in direct connection uh, with his greatest treasure, which was his covenant. All of them were attack, was an attack against his covenant. That wasn't an accident. Because the enemy knew that the greatest weapon he had was his covenant. So every attack was against his greatest treasure, which was his covenant. I want to show you now, this is my three points I want to show you. Three things in Samson's life, three things that attacked his covenant. Three things that, that uh, the enemy used to lessen his relationship and his devotion with the Father. So I want to read these to you here this morning. Number one, number one, Samson's first problem was that he was attracted to the very thing that held him in bondage. Let me show you what I mean. Judges chapter 14. Judges is after Joshua chapter 14, which is before thir after 13, before number 15, if you're trying to find it in your Bible. Judges chapter 14, starting in verse 1. It says, On or one day when Samson was in Timin, Timin, in some place that starts with a T, one, one of the Philistine women caught his eye. When he returned home, he told his father and mother, a young Philistine woman in the tea town caught my eye and I was, or, and I want to marry her. So go get her for me. So he already sounds like a spoiled brat, right? I like this girl, mom, dad, go get her for me. That's every girl's dream, right? I like you. Mom, dad, go tell her I like her, right? You know, his father and mother objected. Isn't there even one woman in our tribe among all the Israelites you could marry? They asked, why must you go and uh, why must you go to the pagan Philistines to find a wife? So Samson, 
the very people who have held your people in captivity for, I believe, over 30 years at this point. That's who you're attracted to? The very people God had raised you up to conquer and to defeat is the very same people that you want to become family with. Samson's first problem was that he was attracted to the very thing that held him in captivity. He was attracted to the very thing that held him in captivity. You know, there's a, there's a verse in the Bible that says that we are to be in the world, but not of the world in the world and not of the world. Now I've heard ministers, I've heard preachers take this to the point where they don't, you know, they want you to completely just alienate yourself from the world. And I don't think we're supposed to completely alienate ourselves because it says we are to be in the world, but not of the world, right? And so there's a point where you can be in the world and there's a point where you can fall in love with Babylon. Where you can be seduced by the thing that would hold you into captivity. And that was Samson's problem here. Is yeah, he, he was supposed to be there in that culture. But he fell in love with the very thing that held him in captivity. And I'm afraid too many times we fall in love with the very thing that holds us in captivity. That our struggle with devotion is often attributed to our love for the things of this world. For our love for the, the things that this world can give us. And because we have not separated ourselves, but instead we've married ourselves to the very things that are holding us in captivity. Amen? We are to be in the world, but not of the world. Some of us can't find victory because we have a crush on Babylon. Because we have a crush on the things of this world. So number one, Samson's first problem was that he was attracted to the very thing that held him in bondage. Number two, this is a big one. Samson thought, his spectacular achievements gave him permission to neglect his simple devotion. Let me say this one more time, because I think this more than any of them probably we can all relate to. He thought his spectacular achievements gave him permission to neglect his simple devotion. Samson did some pretty impressive things for the kingdom, didn't he? Right? So he, uh, let's see, what's some of the things he did? Samson killed thousands of Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. One of the coolest stories in the Bible, right? He picks up the jawbone of the, I can see the movie in my head and it is awesome. There's, uh, never mind. There, he killed thousands with the jawbone of a donkey. He tore the gates off of a city and carried them up a hill. He tied 300 foxtails together, lit them on fire, and released them to burn down the camps of his enemies. Talk about the greatest prank ever in human history. 
right? You know, we sticky noted a car one time. That's nothing compared to tying 300 foxtails together, lighting them on fire and letting them burn down an entire city. Did some amazing things. This one's one of my favorites. He had the guts to call his wife, his Philistine wife, a heifer. <laughs> it's in the Bible. I'm telling you, it's there. When, there's a point where uh, he uh, uh, is, has a riddle. He's playing a game of riddles and his wife, or the Philistines convince his wife to, uh, to, tell, to tell him the riddle so that she can tell them the riddle. And she does that. And he says, you never would have guessed that if you hadn't been plowing with my heifer. When I read that, I was like, Samson, you lucky you ain't dead, man, you know? So he, he had some guts, right? He had some, he did some pretty amazing things. He, listen, he killed a lion, a lion with his bare hands. It says that he ripped the lion apart like it was a baby goat, Amazing feats. Samson did some incredible, mind-blowing things. But he thought because of those spectacular things, it gave him an excuse to break the elementary principles of his vow. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just paraphrase the story instead of reading it. Let me show you what I mean here by that. He, he thought his spectacular, spectacular feats gave him permission to break the elementary principles of his vow. So Samson is walking down the road one time, the same road where he killed the lion. And he comes up to the lion. And instead of avoiding the dead lion, he draws close enough to the lion to see that there's a, there's a, a honey hive in the, the carcass of the lion. What's one of the elementary principles of his vow? To not draw near a dead thing, right? But because of his spectacular feats, because of the amazing things he did for the Lord, he thought it's not going to be a big deal if I come close to see my handiwork. So he draws close enough to the, the carcass of the lion to see that there's honey growing in the lion. And he reaches into the carcass of the dead animal and pulls out the honey to eat. I love how Pastor Micah Wood says this. He says he found a sweet thing in a dead thing. He found a sweet thing in a dead thing. And because of his spectacular feats, it gave, he gave himself permission to break the most elementary principle of his covenant. And what I want to ask you this morning is this, is your spectacular feats, the, the grand public things you do for the Lord, does it give you permission to give up simple devotion behind closed doors when nobody sees it? Does coming to church on a Sunday morning make up for lack of devotion on Monday morning? Does going to the conference and getting passionate and on fire for the Lord at whatever conference you go to, does, does it break, uh, does it cause you, does it give you permission to come home and to never spend time in the Word again? You know, the way to keep that passion the way to keep that fire you get at those conferences is to come home, go behind closed doors and spend time with the father daily, stoking the fire. There's one pastor 
His name's Damon. He, I remember one time he said the Lord told him to stay up all night, stay outside and keep a fire going, to keep a campfire going. And he said, you know, the whole night he would have to come and he'd have to put logs on the fire and that, that would eventually burn out. And he'd have to go into the woods and find more wood to bring out and to keep the fire going. He had to keep laying, uh, laying uh, wood onto the fire. And it's a picture of devotion that you can have this grand fire, but eventually Eventually, if you don't keep maintaining it, it will burn out. So the grand, the, the conference, the big conference where you got lit up and you got excited and passionate for the Lord, that fire will burn out if you neglect devotion. You may go to Harmony House and serve at Harmony House. And that sort of soaks your ego that you've done something for the kingdom. But if you don't have devotion, the Bible says it's meaningless. It says in Matthew, I believe, chapter 7, it says, did, they, did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not heal the sick in your name? And, the, and then it says, the, one of the most scary verses in the Bible, it says, depart from me, for I never knew you. That you can do incredible exploits for the Father, for the kingdom. You can go serve at Harmony House. You can cast out devils. You can heal the sick and raise the dead. But if you lack the simple elementary principle of devotion, it is meaningless. It is for nothing. Because devotion is our single greatest weapon. It's our single most prized possession is our devotion. So number two he thought his spectacular achievements gave him permission to neglect his simple devotion. Spectacular things are important, but they are nothing without personal devotion. And finally, the last one. The last one. The last principle that kept him, or that's robbed him of his devotion. He didn't know who he was flirting with. He didn't know who he was flirting with. Back when I was in middle school, sixth or seventh grade, somewhere in there, I had this enormous crush on a girl named Sarah in my class. And this was back in IMing days. Remember AOL when you had to listen to the dial up, it tied up the phone line and your mom and dad got mad because you were spending too much time chatting online. It was those days we had AOL. You had the rich kids who had two phone lines, right? So they could have one on the internet all the time and one that was your dial-up uh, or one that was your phone. Well, we, we weren't that family. We only had one. So I had very limited a time to talk to my friends online. So I had an instant messenger account. My uh, screen name for instant messenger was Stewed Muffin. 741. And the reason it was stewed muffin, S-T-U-D-E muffin, was because I didn't know how to spell stud properly. <laughs> So I went through my whole instant messaging career with a screen name, Stewed Muffin 741. I don't know what 741 is. I think it just sounded cool. Stewed Muffin 741. I'm going to get it printed on a t-shirt. Stewed Muffin 741. So I'm online. I'm chatting with my friends. Stewed Muffin 741, chatting with his friends. And uh, over here in the column, you remember the little column that showed all your friends who were online. All of a sudden... Sarah's screen name, I don't remember what it was, popped up online, that she was online. 
And I was like, as a seventh grade boy, this is my moment, right? So I'm like, I'm going to spill my guts. I'm going to tell her how I, that I like her, all of these things. So I, I click on her name. I send her a message. We chat about something for a little while. And then I'm, I'm finally like, I'm, I'm working up the courage. And I finally type it out. Something along the line. I don't remember exactly. But something re- probably really dumb as a seventh grader, sixth or seventh grader. Something about that I liked her, right? That I had a crush on her. So I typed it out. I probably stared at it, sweating bullets for a minute. And then I sent the, I sent the message. To my shock and awe and surprise, she messaged back and she had a thing for stewed muffin too, right? She was like, oh, I, I, I can't believe it. I've, I've had a crush on you for such a long time too. And I was like, whoa, you know, this is awesome. So we start typing back and forth to each other. And it was just like this euphoria, you know, like I'm a seventh grade boy. The first girl that I really had a crush on likes me back, right? It's, it's amazing. Life is good. It's going great. Until, until, are you ready for this? I get this message from her. She says, I'm so excited. But the first thing before we can move forward, I have to break up with my boyfriend, Nathan. It gets way worse. (laughs) I have to break up with my boyfriend, Nathan. And at that moment, my heart completely dropped to the floor because Not only did I realize in that moment that my friend, Nathan, it's his girlfriend, I realized it's the wrong Sarah. (laughs) (laughs) Their screen names were very similar to each other. And it wasn't the same Sarah that I had a crush on. It was my, one of my good friends, Nathan's girlfriend, Sarah. So I did what every honorable seventh grader would do. I X'd out of the IM, never responded, and never spoke to her again, right? (laughs) Sometime soon after that, my friend came up to me and said, Josh, Sarah broke up with me. I don't know why. It's like, I don't know, man. That's tough. (laughs) To this day, I don't think he realizes, you know what? I mean, if, but let's be real. I saved him, right? Because if she was willing to break up with him that easy for student muffin, then it wasn't going to work out, right? It wasn't going to be anything lasting. But here's the deal. I didn't know who I was flirting with, right? I was flirting with the wrong person. Samson had the same issue. Samson was flirting with something he had no idea that what he was, who he was flirting with. And he began flirting with this woman named Delilah. He began flirting with this woman named Delilah. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us if Delilah was a Philistine. It doesn't tell us if she was an Israelite. We don't know what she was, but we do know that she was willing to take a bribe in order to capture Samson. It says in the Bible that that Samson fell in love with Delilah, but it never says that Delilah was in love with Samson. And so Samson began flirting with this this woman who he had no idea who she was. And what's interesting here, here's, well, let me get to that here in a minute. So he begins flirting with this woman named, named Delilah. And the Philistines come and they offer Delilah a bribe that if you can get him to tell you what his weakness is, then we'll give you so much money. So she begins going to Samson. 
and begins nagging and begging Samson to tell him, to tell her what his strength is. Where does his strength lie? The first thing Samson does is he lies to her, right? Is he says, if you bind me with new bowstrings that are still wet, that have not dried out yet, if you bind me with bowstrings, I will lose all my power and will be defeated. So what happens? She tells the Philistines, she yells, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And Samson gets up, he breaks the bowstrings, and he defeats the Philistines. You would think at that moment, Samson would be smart enough to realize, maybe I need to get rid of this, this chick, right? But he doesn't. She comes back to him again, and she asks, Samson, what, 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 how do you have your strength? What's the source of your power? How would somebody defeat you? And he says, well, Delilah, if, I, if somebody binds me with brand new ropes, ropes that have never been used, that are, that are fresh out of the rope maker's tent, if you bind me with those, I will lose all my power, and I will not be able to conquer my enemy. So he goes to sleep. She binds him with the new ropes. She wakes him up. The Philistines are upon you. He breaks the ropes. He takes care of business. That didn't work. She's getting frustrated at this point, And Samson is getting stupider at this point. And she comes to him and she just keeps nagging him. Samson, she's like, you're making fun of me now. You're, you're lying to me. Tell me your strength. Tell me how can you be conquered? How can you be defeated? And here's where it gets interesting. He went from the bowstrings to the ropes to now he says, if you braid the seven locks of my hair into a fabric and tie them with a loom shuttle, whatever that is, if you tie them with a loom shuttle, then I'll be as weak as any man. He still lies to her right? She does it. Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He breaks loose. He takes care of business. But what's interesting and what's scary is, is look at the progression. First, it was bowstrings and then it was a rope, but now he's got a little bit closer. He's not all the way there yet, but he's gotten a little bit closer to now it's, if you braid my hair into the fabric, then I'll be as weak as any man. And what we're seeing here is the progression of compromise. The progression of compromise. It's interesting that we don't know much about Delilah other than she was a jerk, right? We don't know much about her other than that. But what we do know is she comes from a valley. Let me find the name of it. She comes from the valley Sorek. She comes from the Valley Sorak. So that's all we really know about Delilah is that she comes from the Valley Sorak. What's interesting about that is the Valley Sorak lies in between the territories of the Philistines and the Israelites. The Valley of Sorak lies right in between, right in the middle of the two camps, of the two territories. And why that is interesting is this, is oftentimes compromise is not something that is, or it doesn't begin with something good and it doesn't begin with something bad. It begins with something that is just kind of like right in the middle. That it's, it's, not, it's not really that good, but it's, it's also not really that bad. It's one step away from either one. 
One, all, it is, all it would take is one foot this way for it to be good and one foot this way for it to be very, very bad. And that's the progression we're seeing here. We're seeing Samson slowly moving in the way of compromise. And he didn't tell her the full truth. He just said, if you braid my hair, then I'll lose my power. And what was, and when that didn't work, she finally, she came back to him one more time. And she says, Samson, for real, man, tell me, what is it that gives you your strength? What is it that we need to do? And he finally says, if you to cut all the locks of my hair off, if you cut all seven braids of my hair off, I'll be as weak as any man. And of course, we know the story, Sam, Delilah lulls him to sleep. She cuts all of his hair off. And when he wakes up, all of his anointing, all of his power, all of the things that, that gave him his strength, his covenant, the thing that is the single greatest, most powerful tool he had, his covenant, was gone. And now he was as weak as any man. They came, they bound him, and they put him in prison. He lost his single greatest weapon, his covenant, because he was standing in the middle of that valley, toying back and forth, and was only one step away from compromise. And he allowed that slow progression of compromise. Here's the tricky thing about compromise. It always starts out completely innocent. It always starts out completely innocent. An alcoholic never starts drinking with the idea that he wants to end as an alcoholic that loses everything. It starts with just one casual drink. Just one compromise. And it progresses into something out and something else. A porn addict never begins that journey thinking, I want to be addicted to pornography, right? He never begins that journey. It always starts off with just an innocent, seemingly innocent image that progresses into compromise. And at some point in time, you're standing in the middle of this valley and you have this choice to go over or to stay. And what compromise does is it just slowly brings you in to bondage. To a point where you lose your devotion, you lose your single greatest tool that you have in your relationship with Jesus because of little, small compromises along the way. Compromise, I think, is probably one of the deadliest tools of the enemy because it comes in so subtle, so little that you don't even realize it's happening. I don't, I don't mean to harp on alcohol, you know, because that's whatever. But it's just, it's just an easy illustration. To, to, you can put in whatever you want. But, but alcohol, sometimes compromise with, with something like alcohol doesn't even affect maybe you and your generation. But it gives permission for the next generation. One of the, the greatest uh, 
or one of the, the, the biggest lessons we learned at the Ramp School of Ministry, the one that, that has stuck with me probably more than any others, as, is, is this leadership principle that says, what you do in moderation, they will do in excess. So compromise may not even affect your generation. It may not even affect you. But what you do in moderation, what you do in the middle of that valley, may give permission for that next generation to fall and to compromise. Compromise is a deadly weapon. And, and it all begins, again, it, it, compromise, its home, its place of living is in the valley. It's not really bad. I can get away with it without feeling convicted. But it's really not all that good either. And that's where compromise begins. And I believe it is the deadliest tool of devotion or to devotion. So what can that look like? It can look like alcohol. It can look like maybe friendships, relationships with people you know you're not supposed to have relationship with or friendships with. But you make an exception. And then you find yourself doing things that you never would have done. Never would have done had you not made that made that. Um, decision. It can look like material things. You know, we looked at the rich young ruler last week, right? And he had all kinds of wealth and things, which was not a bad thing. Having wealth, having good things. Again, I can show you scriptures in the Bible where people were wealthy because of their relationship with the Lord. So the wealth wasn't a bad thing. The bad thing was, was that he was unwilling to give up his love of wealth to follow Jesus. It was this compromise. So maybe it's material things that you're compromising with. You know, it could be a plethora of different things, but it always begins as something that's not either good nor bad. It's in the middle, but eventually it leads to compromise. So let's look at those one more time. Our th the three things. Samson's first problem was that he was attracted to the very thing that held him in bondage. He thought his spectacular achievements gave him permission to neglect his simple devotion. And finally, he didn't know who he was flirting with. And because of that, it led to compromise. Church, one last time, our single greatest weapon, the greatest treasure we have is our devotion. The greatest treasure we have is our relationship with the Father. You know, I'll, I'll end with this analogy. I was thinking about this this week. And, and I, I really, I really, I struggle sometimes with this, these kinds of messages because I don't want our no to be louder than our yes. I don't think our no is a good motivator to leading and living our best life. I think... Our, our greatest motivator to living as we should as Christians is our yes, not our no. But I also think we have to be mindful of the vices the enemy uses to steal our yes. You know, when we get married, when we marry somebody, when I married Amber, I said yes to her, and my one yes to her was an automatic no to everybody else. That my yes to Amber was a no 
to Sarah, right? Both of them, right? <laughs> Our yes to the Father our yes to Jesus should be so loud and so clear and so focused that it is an automatic no to anything that would try to come between me and that yes. Our yes to the Father should be so prevalent in our lives. Our yes to pursuing him and to seeking him is an automatic no to all of those to where compromise isn't even, even enticing to us. That sin isn't even enticing to us. That things that are kind of on the line, that, are, that could be good, could be bad, depending on how you take it, that those things don't even, don't even find, that we don't even find appealing anymore because his beauty and his face and his goodness and our yes to that is so loud that all of those things don't even matter. That compromise doesn't even have a place because our yes is so loud. That our fascination with the things that are holding us into captivity don't even have a place because our yes is so loud. That yes, the spectacular things that we do for the kingdom are awesome, but it's nothing compared to my devotion with the Father. That Sunday morning, this service, all of this is incredible. I love coming and fellowshipping with all of you. I love coming and worshiping with all of you. I love coming and hearing the word with all of you. But it does not come close to when I go into my room and I shut the door and I pray to my father who is in the secret place. And the father who sees me in secret rewards me openly. That Sunday morning is awesome. And it's needed and we have to come together because the Bible tells us to and because it's where we get equipped. It's the equipping of the saints and it's awesome, but it doesn't compare to Monday morning. That the conference was encouraging. It was uplifting. It was amazing. It, it really lit the fire underneath me, but it doesn't come close to my prayer closet. It doesn't come close to my personal, intimate, one-on-one -on -one relationship with the Father. Because as amazing as all of those things are, they mean nothing without this. They mean nothing without your yes to Him. All the no's mean nothing without your yes.